Welcome to each and every one of you to Journey to the Stage with Brian Frazier. I am the aforementioned Brian Frazier, and I'm so grateful that you've pulled up a chair to join us for this historic episode. If this is your first time with us, I extend a special welcome to you. On this podcast, we chat with legends and legends in the making. One legend in the making I'm grateful for is my friend from San Antonio, visual and musical artist Chris Taylor, for the use of his song, Arise and Shine, as my theme song. Not only is Chris a gifted musical artist, but he can turn any surface into a canvas for art and just about any style that you could imagine. To support a great indie artist, swing by ChrisTaylorWorld.com and check out his work. So from indie artists to legends, and boy, do we have a legend with us today. So in the spring of 2022, I reached out to Carol Kay to wish her a late happy birthday and to invite her onto my podcast. To my surprise, she actually replied. Since I booked my own guest, I reach out to a lot of artists, and some say yes, some say no, and some I simply don't get a reply from. To get a reply from Carol was a really big deal for me, but she said no. But I knew right away that I was going to try again down the road a bit. So after about a year, I sent her another note, and this time I mentioned two legendary vocalists who I'd had on my podcast before, Sally Stevens and Ron Hicklin, who knew Carol very, very well. They spent lots and lots of hours in the studio together. Well, a little name dropping helped. And soon I got a reply from Carol and she said, well, since you've had them on, why not? Let's do it. So we booked a date and chatted on the phone. What I didn't know is that this would become one of the most comprehensive interviews that Carol has done. We cover a lot of ground. Some of the ground has been covered before in other places. But what I wanted to do is go a little deeper, ask things maybe in a way that allowed us to learn something new. That wasn't an easy task for somebody who has given so many interviews. I truly hope that what we're left with is a great historical document, a great recounting of part of the story about a great legend and legendary musician. If you enjoy the way it turned out, I'd be so thankful for any kind of reviews or ratings, follows or subscribes that you would give. And as an indie podcaster, I can tell you that those things really make such a huge difference and they're always very, very encouraging. Without further ado, let's kick off part one of this comprehensive Carol Kay conversation on Journey to the Stage with Brian Frazier. Well, Carol, it's a real, real honor for me to chat with you. How are you doing these days? How are you feeling and how's life? Well, uh, at times, I think I'm going to just be fine. And then the mm-hmm. next day that there's something, you know, you eat something wrong or you're, you overdo it or something. Sometimes you really have to watch it, you know, when you're yeah. older. That's all. You know, you just can't do the things you used to do when you were younger. But the mind is still there. You know, the, the mind still says, let's go. Let's go. Let's have fun. You know, yeah. <laughs> and you can't. <laughs> well, I hear you. And I'm so glad you're, you're with me today. And before we get Get started Thank as you. as you know you know it's really just been a few days since we've learned of the passing of Tina Turner I know that you have done oh, some work yeah. with with her and I can maybe tell yes. us a little bit about uh-huh. before we get started into the bulk of our conversation just maybe talk to us about your experience with Tina 
Well, Brian, she was a nice lady, but she kind of sat on the side and was very quiet. You know, we, mm-hmm. we all met her, you know, but I think that the two had talked, and so he just had her sit on the side just in case they needed her, I think, you know. Right. Uh, so, I mean, so we, we had no idea what, what the record was going to sound like. You know, when I first mm-hmm. met Ike, I, I think it was his, his first record date, too, you know, and I was playing guitar. Yeah. And I watched him play that piano bass guitar that he had because I never saw anybody play like he did, you know. And I was really looking intently at him. Wow, I was really amazed. And I think he thought I was looking at him, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) So he walks over and he's still playing, you know. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh. So I picked up the guitar and played some bebop. And I mean, he looked like I shot him, you know. So it was good. He just backed off like, whoa, you know, that so he, he knew that I wasn't after him at all, you know, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, and, a, and it was a, a fun date because he was very inventive with his music <laughs> and all, and it was soul music, so it was kind of fun, but, yeah. you know, she was very nice, very pretty gal, but she just sat there very quiet, and on all the dates, she just sat on the side quietly, and I thought, hmm, that's kind of strange, but, right. you know, if, if he's the one that's doing all, all the inventiveness with the music, he's just trying to make a good track for her, you know, yeah. and and then the other time that I worked for her later on, like years later, you know, um, because that, that was about 59 or 16 when I first worked for them. Wow. And then, and that was with Phil Spector, about 68, I believe it was, you know. I had been playing a lot of bass by then. I started bass because uh, uh, I got to a Capitol Records date after about six years of recording on guitar. And, mm-hmm. and being a jazz player, I was really getting sick and tired of the the uh, rock and roll stuff on guitar. Yeah. You know, because I, I used that, that guitar to play beautiful music, jazz and all that on for years and years before I ever got in the studio work. So I, I get on this date at Capitol and the bass player didn't show up and somebody had a, a Fender bass so they put it in my lap and said, you play it. You know, so I said, okay, I've never played a bass before in my life, you know, and then I had fun playing it and inventing some lines I could hear hear what other bass players were not playing and and what I could invent. And I think that the jazz improv, when you step on stage to play jazz, you you invent every note, see. So it was that improv, I think, idea of playing bass. I knew what what the record needed. You know, after six years of doing records, you know what makes a hit record happen. Mm -hmm. And But by that time, it was bass lines because... Nobody was playing good. They were playing boop de boo lines, you know. Right. You had right. three three bass players. You had the Fender bass. You had the string bass, and and you had the um, the demo. Well, the the string bass they call it string bass in in the Union oh. book, you know. Anyway, gotcha. yeah. Others call it upright or or double bass or whatever you want to say. But mm-hmm. uh, it, so they had three basses going boop boop boop. Boo, boo, and I heard boom, ba do ba do ba 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 do ba do oh 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 ba ba do ba do. You know, I heard the framework around a tune, in in musical notes on the bass. Now, when you're playing jazz, that straight ahead bass is very important. You know, it it it's not a front liner, it's not a sax player or anything. But without a a great bass line, the music falls flat, and especially with 
rock and roll and pop music. You've got to have a good bass line doing it. And so all of a sudden, I'm getting calls for bass all the time. And then they didn't use three bass players. Then they just used me. Most of the time, they used me, you know, just one bass. So so that that's how that got started, you know. And and the music was more fun on bass, too, because well, you sure, could something that. that made the music snap, you know. One of the things as I was preparing for our chat, as I mentioned before we started recording, I've watched lots and lots of interviews that you have done over the years, and there are some things that you definitely consistently get asked, and they're wonderful questions. I want to maybe talk about something that's a little unconventional in the beginning, okay. and that's about sure. your kids. You, you, I've heard you briefly brag about your kids. You you love your children. Tell us what they're doing, and right. I know um, that your son has, has is a musician as well, so maybe before we dive into all your musical history, talk us about something that I know that you're very, very proud of as well, and that's your kids. Well, my kids, I was always honest with them what was going on in the music, and I would bring them down, especially the two oldest I brought down on some dates one time with Bill Spector, and he was very, very nice to my kids. He he, he was a little strange back then, yeah, kind of weird. But, you know, <laughs> the, the people who produced record dates were all kind of strange, <laughs> you know, as far as I was concerned. But he was very nice to my kids, and so I, yeah. I brought my daughter down, the older daughter, and and Pete down, and, and uh, Pete always sat next to the drummer, you know, and Earl Palmer, that number one drummer that oh, was boy. used on yeah. most of the pop dates and the soul dates and, and later on in movies and the TV too, you know, Earl Palmer took a liking to him because Pete, my son, he was my second born kid and he was born in between two girls and me. He had to put up with all, all the women <laughs> in the family. And so uh, Earl liked him and, and he had an interest in playing drums. You know, he'd been beaten on pots and pans all of his young life. <laughs> And so I, I bought him a drum set, and he started to practice, and he turned out to be a fine drummer all of his life. Wow. But, nice. but he also had, had an artist career. He, he worked for Mattel, uh, and, and he still works for Mattel, the artwork that they need sometimes on, on computers. You know, so he does that, too. And the oldest child, uh, Peggy, was my firstborn. I, mm-hmm. I was 16 when I had her, so I was pretty young, and we, we kind of grew up together in a way, yeah, you know. Right. But uh, it, it was a struggle because I, I was poor when, when I was a little kid, uh, you know, working since I was nine years old, scrubbing floors and everything wow. to help put food on the table for my, my mm-hmm. mother and myself, you know. So anyway, so w- one thing led to another, and I married young, and I had kids young and, and all that. And I, I married twice, and then I got the last divorce was after the birth of my last child, mm-hmm. uh, a girl. And by that time, I was starting to play bass at the same time. You know, m- My second husband didn't want me to play music with the guys, you know. It, and he had no call for that at all because I, I was... Faithful, I'm a faithful person when I'm married and like that, but some of the men aren't, you know, so, so anyway, you know, so I, I got a divorce when it didn't work out with, with my kids, my kids didn't feel safe, you know, it's getting, uh, getting kind of angry at my kids all the time, mm-hmm. and not spoiled yeah. kids at all, so anyway, so then when I started making some money in the studio, I hired a, a live-in lady to take good oh. care of my kids, Mm-hmm. And, and I paid her well and, and, and all, and uh, then I had 
six people to take care of. See, so I've, I've worked hard all the time sure. playing bass in the studios, and and it was fun. I I liked it for a long time. Um, it's the surf music that surf that da 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 da. You keep doing that day after day. We used to call it ditch digger music, you know, because you're putting out the energy, but that's it. You know, that got a little tiresome. But when I do dates with Nell Torne or, or people like that, then it was, and Ray Charles especially, oh, my God, that was fun. That was really a thrill. And I used to take my kids down there, and, and the kids loved it. My, my oldest daughter got, got into business school, and she was a success in business. And the younger daughter got uh, her her father paid for her education and she got to working for NASA, you know, and she, she still is, is, is working for, for NASA. So all three kids worked hard and I made them work but when they were young kids too to get the idea of working. Well, good. And they've learned a good work ethic from their mom. And I, I know that your your original family, your your family, when you were a kid, you guys moved from Wil- uh, to Wilmington. You were born up in Washington and you lived through some times of poverty, as you mentioned, it was during that time that, that you got your first instrument that your mom bought for you. Here's what amazes me is you went from starting to play, taking a few lessons to giving giving lessons and playing in clubs really within a year. How in the world were you able to do that? Oh, no, it was less than that because it's the right education. See, today, they don't, most teachers don't know that education because they're they're from the rock and roll fields, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, three, I mean, three chords. I I grew up with those music, but even if you grew up listening to the music, you still can't play it unless you have the right education. And and, and I worked after school for a private teacher who who, who happened to be the the finest guitar teacher on the West Coast, see? So wow. he, he taught me, and he taught me how to transcribe the lines off the records and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and how to teach, you know? So within about five or six months, I, I'm out there playing gigs, you know, that that kind of jazz, you know, yeah. uh, exactly like you and the talk of the town and, 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 and those kind of tunes, the standards, you know. It, it was easy for me because you heard that music all the time and as soon as, as, soon as you, so someone gives you the right technique to learn how chords move and move yeah. around and playing patterns, so you learn how to play the patterns from, mm-hmm. from the chord notes, never from note scales. See, it's, you don't get an education from note scales. Those are, are moving notes. Those aren't your your real solo notes, you know. So I've, I've been teaching that ever since. And every time I teach somebody, they do well. It's an education that's not around today very much. That's the problem today as well. You don't have the touring bands to go uh, touring with and playing in big bands to, to get the experience. See, everybody in the studio work back in the 50s and the 60s and 70s were from the big bands and or from from jazz groups where you invent every note you play and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, and then the the soloists, we had Glenn Campbell and Leon Russell and these people, they they have some unique 
things to give to the pop records. But most of us were from the big bands and the jazz, and that, that teaching is not around very much anymore right now. That's why I work hard online to try to pass along what I know, to give them the idea that, yes, you can learn. You don't have to practice hours a day to get it. Just one hour a day is fine, you know. Now, I know during the 50s, that scene, the club scene in Los Angeles was just hopping. My mom is a little bit younger than you, but she would talk about how people would dress up, I mean, suits and That's you know, right. whole ties, and it was it was a it was an event. It, it was blacks and whites together too. We we, we loved each other. It, it, it was wonderful to dress up and and go out and enjoy music together and just you're not thinking about all anything bad today. Right. Everybody's thinking stuff bad all the time, right. and it's because they don't have any music to listen to, to dance to, or to to, to enjoy together. Yeah. And that's a problem today. You know, it seems like everybody's online fighting with each other. Mm-hmm. You got to play in those jazz bands in the in 50s. those jazz bands of the fifties. Yeah, it was a largely black scene. So here's this young white oh. woman playing in these black clubs and, and cutting your teeth on jazz. Sometimes I was the only white person, but I didn't <laughs> feel that at all. These are people. Yeah. We, yeah. we we're all people together, and and I love to work with them, and they were so kind to me. Everybody said, "Oh, you had it rough," you know. I said, "I didn't have it rough. The only time I had it was rough was two two guys in the studio work who who were nutty people. That's all. <laughs> I never had it rough playing jazz, and half the band was yes, they used drugs in the back room, and the other half was out in the front and enjoying enjoying a drink or something like. Like that, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't a high band at all. It, so some of them did, did, did have some drug problems, but when you're playing, you can feel when they're starting to lose the thread or something, and so you jump in and, and help. You know, your ears are way out to there. You know when when you're playing, you, you know what is needed in the music, and I think it's that quality that people that produce music in the late fifties and sixties out in Hollywood they, they knew that jazz musicians were the best to count on because we got the finest of sounds, we got clean sounds, and we were there on time. People laugh at that, but it's true. We, we, yeah. we, when, yeah. when you have starved, and you know what it's like to go hungry for, for two or three days, you will be on time, believe me. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. It's such a neat time. And so, for you to be cutting your teeth on jazz, how do you think that served you later as a player when you became really a, a stalwart in the studio. How do you think that jazz beginning for you served you later as a musician? It's a reason why I was a success. Glenn Campbell grew up on, on country music and, and uh, you know, that those styles of music. Mm-hmm. That was fine for him. He sometimes would kick some of the tunes of the jazz tunes and he'd try to play them, but he'd go, you know, kind of put a country swing to it. And he, he never played in the clubs with the jazz band, so he could have, if he took the time out to do so, because he had a lot of yeah. 
Sure. Yeah, he did. but he he was so popular with his rock solos, and all of a sudden you didn't see him for a year or two, and then we're all trying to work for him because he was a star then. You know, he sung real good. You know, so that was it. Yeah, we'll talk about Glenn a little bit later. So you're playing in these clubs, but I know at that point you still weren't quite making enough to to make oh, a, no. a full living out. So what were you what were you doing on the side? You're playing clubs in the evening. What were you doing as a, as a day job? Uh, well, I did have to have a day job, but when 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 Bumps Blackwell, the producer for Sam Cooke, asked me to to do some record date for him, and he said, "Oh, he said you've got to move closer to the studios here in Los Angeles, uh, in, in Hollywood, you know, because I've got a lot of work." So I did. I moved my mother and my two kids up to North Hollywood, and it fell flat. There wasn't that much studio work, so I thought, "Okay, well, I can't make a living playing playing bebop." So. You know, so I got a, a day job again at, at Bendix, and, and I'm typing the manuals for, for all the missiles and, and clear, cleared for top secret. Now, here I am with the black button oh, wow. in my badge and, and going out to, to, to play with the guys who were uh, doing that pot backstage. You know, so I had to be careful, you know. But yeah. anyway, so, so I did that a couple of years, and, and then finally it, it took off, and I got enough of guitar record days, but I played 12-string guitar, and I played the, the Dano bass guitar. I played ukulele. I played banjo. I played all the string instruments then, you know, and most of it was, was pretty good. You know, the Sam Cooke stuff, when I first got to recording, was so beautiful, the way he sang yeah. and everything. The oh, tunes yeah. were good, and then uh, talk about jazz. Uh, you go to work in the studio, and you're working with the same jazz cats that you worked live with. Oh, because, wow. <laughs> because the producers knew that, you know, if, if they got the jazz guys to come work for them, that they could depend upon them for great sound, they could advance, and, and we were there, you know. So as the jazz started folding because of the rock and roll, the rock and roll came in and grabbed the clubs, you know. And so right. one by one, those hundred or so clubs in Los Angeles uh, in Hollywood and the South Bay, too, they, they were out in the South Bay, folded, and they turned into comedy clubs and rock clubs, you know. And, and the Strip, even, the Sunset Strip had a lot of great jazz clubs, and they turned into those rock, the House of Rock or, or House of Blues or something, you know, so they turned into the rock clubs. And then the workforce of the studio kind of grew, and then pretty soon the guys from New York, moved out to L.A. because you had the movies that were going gangbusters, too. What happened with the mm-hmm. movies is another story because you had films that were being put out of business, film companies being put out of business by TV. So made different kind of movies, and they hired the finest composers in the world, Lalo Schifrin, uh, Quincy Jones. Uh, they hired uh, Michelle Legrand. They had... Jerry Goldsmith, all the greatest composers. And so by by 64, I started doing some films, too. And that that was enjoyable. That was really great. Yeah, when when you're working for the finest composers. And then Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys wasn't bad, too. You know, here's this young kid that comes (laughs) along with this uh, rock and roll stuff, and he grew with every record date. And we we knew that this kid was into something, you know. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's the only time that I didn't have to make up any bass lines, because he he wrote his bass lines out, you know. Yeah. Yeah. 
And and it was interesting. That first session you got called into, it was about 57 or so for Sam Cooke. 1957. Yeah, what was the first record you did with him? I don't know the first tune, but Summertime was one of the tunes. I don't think that was on the first date. That wasn't on the first date. I I forget what I did on the first date, and I I don't remember. Except I knew he could sing, the music was easy, and I worked with other jazz musicians, and it was so easy to work for Bunce Blackwell. Wonderful man. At first, he was so smooth when he asked me in the nightclub, he he or me with the Teddy Edwards Jazz Group, you know, and... Billy Higgins was our drummer, Curtis Counts on bass, and Jerry Mandel on piano. And it was a hot group. It was, and he, <laughs> he heard me, and he, and he was so smooth. I thought, wait a minute. I, I don't trust this guy, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 18 or, or 23 by then. I had been on the road with my first husband with a big band like that. So, so I, I've been around, and, you know, when somebody's that nice and smooth, you know, you wonder about it, but he turned out to be a really great person, and wow. he meant everything he said, and, and and the rest of the band knew him, so, so it was all right for, for me to go. And the music was so beautiful, and it was so easy to create little lines and chord yeah. fills and all that kind of stuff. It, it was easy, you know, yeah. but th- then it got into m- more serious rock and roll, and, and at that time, that was a time that I also worked for Bing Crosby and, and and Margaret, I did her very first record dates with her on guitar, and quite a few of the of the pop stars like that too. And it was it was fun, and it was money. And then after a while, I, I could quit my day job, and and uh, things got better. We we had more to eat. I could I clothe my kids and make them feel better. I even bought a piano for my mother if she needed wow. it. Got got her the medical and, and dental help that she needed. You know, so it it all was great. Uh, to to make the money. Yeah, let's think about that for a second because this is actually really neat. So your mom, when you were very young, was saving nickels and dimes and pennies and mm-hmm. bought you your first guitar, which launched your right. career. And here you are, several years later, you're finding some success. And you're able to yeah. turn around and buy your mom a piano. That is really interesting. Well, Pearl Harbor happened. We, we were up in Everett, Washington. My mom and dad were not getting along anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the, the war happened, and I, I remember, and we, uh, uh, my dad had to sell her piano so that we had money to drive down so that he, he could work in the shipyards of, of California, Southern California. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so that that's when we got in the car. Uh, we couldn't take hardly anything, and, and mm-hmm. she never had a piano from 1941, uh, Pearl Harbor, down to about 1959, I'd say. She, she never had, as soon as she, she got that piano, she was happy. You know, Aww. she was really happy. So, you, you know, and I could afford the things that we were struggling for years and years, you know. Uh, you, you know, it, it's in my book. I think you've got my book, and it's in my I do. book. It's, Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wrote some of those uh, trying times down, you know, just to give yeah. people the idea of what it was. But I'm not the only one that suffered. Nobody right. had money back in the 30s and the 40s. The, the right. 40s people started making money because they went to work during the war. You know, that's the first time anybody had any money in years. The, what they went through, those men, they wanted to have a better life for their kids, and that's 
what they did. They made life better in the 50s. The music was all part of that, see, in the 50s mm -hmm. and, and the 60s. Then the, those kids grew up, and all of a sudden we're selling those records like crazy, you know, the <laughs> rock and roll and all those yeah. They could dance to the I'm in with the in crowd. I played the, the, the Daniel bass guitar on that, you know, and it was fun. It was good music. It was fun. Yeah. And I think it's just incredible that you were such a part of helping to launch rock and roll. You look at people that you played with very early on, like Richie Valens. I mean, that's you yeah. on guitar in La Bamba and Donna and some of these really historic and iconic tunes in the birth of rock and roll. It's huge. Uh, you know, I, I think of him a lot, too. Richie could play now. He, he played his solos. You know, he was such a nice man. You know, there were times I'd just get down and say, I don't want to play this dog music. I'm not a rocker, you know. <laughs> but then I worked for, for Richie, and I thought, well, if the rest of the people were like him, it'd be perfect. It'd be, I don't care if it's rock and roll because he made it fun, see. And yeah. it's so appreciative of us musicians. Uh, that's Earl Palmer on drums on that. And that Earl did most of the drumming for, for Sam Cooke, too, see. So yeah. it, it was, we just locked into the groove and just grooved. You know, I played the, the backup guitar. The guy that's playing um, that bum, 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 that's not me. Everybody thought it was me on the demo, but no, that's Rennie Hall. R Rennie Hall had some Dano bass guitar hits oh, wow. back in the 50s, you know, and he was a jazz guitar player. He, he's the mm -hmm. one that you hear on Sam Cooke's first hit, you know, that, that's Rennie Hall, the, You Send Me, you know. Wonderful yeah. man, wonderful oh, yeah. man. I, I, I worked for him, too, for a lot of dates, you know. That was us together, and we, we all got along so well together, you know. It was just fun. You talked about why you made the transition to bass, and then through the next many years, you got to play with truly the best of the best. I mean, Sinatra I and sure Simon Garfunkel and Ray Charles and the yeah. Beach Boys, Temptations. We'll talk about some of those in a few minutes. But I know that some of the sessions were not with top artists. They were not with the best producers or the best artists in town. What were some of those uh, recording sessions like that maybe didn't go so well? Maybe some stories that weren't with the top-notch people that you're scratching your head thinking, oh, boy, this is kind of a train wreck here. Did you have any of those kinds of experiences? Well, there's very few, few of those because uh, we, we all had the attitude, first of all, of gratefulness because you're, you're talking about a bunch of musicians that, that never made the money in their whole life, you know, and we're, we're all in the studio making a lot of money. It's like, holy shit, we're, we're, we're really – we can pay our bills and we can raise our kids and they don't have to be poor like we used to be and like that. So you you have a, a bunch of grateful musicians in there. So, you know, so we, we, we cut a lot of stuff that, no, nah, you know, you didn't especially like, but we made it groove. And the yeah. thing of it is, is that you got to have some jokes going on. you you, you got to kid around a little bit. You can't talk yeah. too much in the studios. You say a couple of things and we're all laughing. Or if they're watching us, then you're laughing on the inside, you know. So sometimes you have to keep a straight face because you, oh. you, you don't want to laugh at the wrong time, you know. There were some times, yeah, that after a while you're working, you know, because you get these calls because you did so many of those kinds of dates that the music wasn't that great, you know. But we made it great. We made it into hit, hit records feel, see, that 
that was our job, to get every tune that we could into a, a hit record feel. We created the lines and made it groove. But there were times later on, uh, you know, like, like the, the one time with this rocker that came in and he was just higher than a kite, and then <laughs> his producer in the booth was doing cocaine. Now, I never oh, saw boy. the cocaine in my life until then. And the guy had cut a track, just himself playing and playing guitar and singing. And it was up and down with tempo and all that stuff. So we tried oh, to match our platform to that. We couldn't do it. And the singer was kind of picking on me. You know, I'm the girl of the band, right? And so he's picking <laughs> on me. And I said, well, you know, let, let us go ahead and uh, redo the track for you. He says, well, my bass player can do it. And I, I had had, I said, that's it. I, I started packing up my bass. I said, okay, you go get your bass player because I quit. I can't, I can't do this. And he said, why can't you? I said, because... It's like telling them you have bad breath or something. You have bad time. Your time, it goes up and down, and nobody can can put any kind of a track to you at all because we wow. could try all night, and, and we'd be here all night trying to do it because you, can, you can't play. Or so, I just said something like that, and I packed yeah. up, and then the producer walked in, and he says, well, you're all fired, you know. <laughs> you know, now, none of the guys said anything, just me, see, me and him. And he was so shocked that I was talking to him like that. So anyway, so, so we're, we're walking out happy, you know, that that's it. You know, and, and as soon as the door closed, the guy said, oh, you were great, Carol. You were happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you very much. And, 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 and the union asked me about it a couple of days later on a record day. I said, I ran it down. I said, this is what happened, you know, the drugs and the food. And so he said, well, you're going to get paid anyway. That's the first time I, first and only time I walked out of a date like that, you know. But he fired us first, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's a shame because the the guy later on died of drugs, you know. Oh, and pe- people all want to know what his name was. I said, listen, he has a son. I'm not going to blast his name across the airways, you know. Good for you. I, I can respect that, Carolyn. And, you know, one thing I, I really respect about it's what too you bad, yeah. Some, yeah, it is. It's tragic. And, you said something earlier that I really liked. Whether it was whether you're working for Quincy Jones or Phil Spector or some unknown producer, you guys saw your job to lay the absolute best track to make it have the feel of a hit. You can't you yeah. can't change the song. It is written as it is written. You can change you can make your parts better. But you gave it the same effort, and I really, really appreciate that. That was our job. People think it's personal. I said, No, it's a business. You're taking care of business. You're there to make a hit for everybody, doesn't matter who they are or what they are, because you're only as good as the last hit record that you've made. Like I said, there were two people I didn't get along with. One, I learned how to outcuss him, and the other one, I just poked <laughs> fun back at him really bad, you know, so... So, you know, so they, they, I mean, they, they didn't really bother me after a while, you know. Yeah. Now back in the fifties and sixties and into the seventies, and, and it still happens a lot today, kind of the dirty little secret in music, in the music world is that so many bands, when it comes time to record, wouldn't bring their own players in. So they would bring in people like you and Tommy Tedesco mm-hmm. and Leon Russell and Campbell Hell Lane, Josh Johnson and more, all these great, incredible musicians. 
Well, we were not a band. That, 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 none of us were right. a band. It, it was right. hundreds of studio musicians known as that for, for years and years. We were always known as the studio musicians, you know. Uh, and, yeah, we, we all did our work hard, and uh, it was uh, it was enjoyable for a while, and then it got bad. But, you know something, it, we knew the thing. Because this, during times of assassination and riots, race riots, a lot of race riots, here we were happily working together, blacks and whites together, and one one blonde and white girl on base. You think that the record companies wanted the world to know who we were? So what's interesting is when when it was discovered that you know bands like the Monkees weren't playing the instruments on their own albums, oh, really, yeah. and all hell broke loose. But the truth of it is you kind of were a beach boy, and so was Glenn Campbell, because, you know, you guys were playing on their albums. Mm-hmm. That's true. But that was kind of the dirty little secret back then. Um, so, yeah, yeah, tell us about that. It, we all knew that uh, we were doing music for the group. In fact, sometimes we would record a record, and they'd form a group around the hit record that we made. See, that, that, that happened with, with the T-Bones and... And some other groups oh, like right. that. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that happened all the time, and uh, we, we we were wondering about that, but we also knew because of society the way it was back in the Vietnam War days and and the the riots and all that stuff. We we, we knew why that they had to keep a secret, and with me especially, you know, with Ray Charles and like I I asked Ray Charles, I said, oh, I just love to play your music. I'd love to go on the road with you, and he broke out laughing. I Oh yeah, excuse me. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> taking me on the road? Are you kidding? Well, that's you know, funny. So it it didn't matter to us because we we, we were paid well. All we did was take, take the money to the bank. We didn't care about being famous then. Fame was not a big thing back then. But in the yeah. 70s, with the big rock groups the, uh, doing their stage work and like that, it, it was a big thing because the magazine featured those rock groups on their covers and all that, and, mm-hmm. and, and they made them into stars. That's a different thing. Being a star is, is different than playing in the background. You know, I love the records you played, uh, and you didn't love them? I said, not not all of them, no. Some of them I did, like <laughs> like the Feeling All Right with Joe Cocker and some of the oh, Big yeah. hits and a lot of the other hits. But no, no, you're, you're cutting the hits and you're glad that the people love it, but you, you don't feel the same way about them as as the people that buy them do. And, and they think that I sit and listen to the music that I record. I said, no, I listen to the music I grew up with, jazz and classical. That's what I listen to. And it's almost like a slap in the face to them that I don't listen to their music, you know. I said, we're a different generation. It's a different thing, you know. It's, it's hard to explain it to them because they want you to love the stuff that they love, you know. Sure. And I understand that. We're glad that they love our our music, so uh, maybe that's part of the thing too. What, what, why they didn't want people to know about us, you know? Right. Now, I've always wondered this, and I kind of asked this question to Ron Hicklin as well, who I know you know very well. You know, you played on so many albums, so many songs that sold many, many, many millions. You know, I mean, take a look at Pet Sounds, for instance, and how big of an album Pet Sounds was, for instance, but. And everybody knew the Beach Boys. Everybody knew Good Vibration. But nobody knew 
that Carol Kay, that that's her base they're hearing. Did it ever did it ever bother you that everybody knew who these guys were but didn't know that it was you in the studio playing that track? Not a lot. Not a lot, no, huh? It bothered me that they didn't know that Brian Wilson wrote the music. That's oh, what right. bothered me. And it was kind of funny because it was right after a time when I had a, a quite a few tough years because I had a businessman that, that, that stole my company for a while. Oh, and, and and I managed to get uh, get it back. But, oh, boy, it, it was, I lived on food stamps. You know, I couldn't even get disability. And the strangest thing is I have... I appealed to to the Reagans who, who were in office at that time. Mm-hmm. I said, please, I've got to have my disability. I need surgery on my TMJ, and I can't mm-hmm. hardly walk, and, and uh, you took my disability away from me. Well, you know something? Nancy Reagan's office got in touch with me and said, we will make sure that you you get your disability because they wow. found out that I had played on the Beach Boys records and those were her favorite records. See, and it made them look at my case and and they restored my my disability and then I had the money to go sue to get my publishing company back and like that. So it was some rough time. So here I am. I'm, I'm back in in uh, in uh, Los Angeles and I'm mad as hell, you know, because I had gone through some years, some tough years. My, my daughter had to drop out of school and she went to work and worked hard, you know. And so anyway, push comes to shove. I'm I'm angry, you know. Then I see what's happening to Brian. I said, what the heck is happening? Because I saw stories in the newspaper about him being sued by Mike Love, that Brian's crazy and all this. Even Hal Blaine called me and he said, well, I said, what's what's the matter with Brian? He said, well, he's just crazy. I said, no, he's not crazy. I saw him on the news, but he's not crazy. He's going through a rough time. He's not nuts, you know. So that made me want to do chat rooms then. See, I, I learned the computer and I learned how to get along on the computer. And so I got in chat rooms. I said, you know, Brian wrote that music. He's not nuts. He's going through a rough head. Oh, and they said, oh, he, he didn't write the music. I said, he wrote the music because we recorded it. Absolutely. You recorded it. The Beach Boys did. <laughs> it was like a, 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 it was like the wind blew their house down. It's like, hey, <laughs> studio musicians did the music for the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys added their voices on later. Yeah, but yeah. we did the music. And they, <laughs> I had so much mud slung at me, and I slung it back at them. And you know what? It made me feel good because I could, I could stand up for Brian, and I knew the truth, and they, they didn't know. And I, I suddenly felt good about my whole life and everything. So fighting for Brian, you know. And I tell people, I said, if you're down about something, go, go do something good for others. You know, because it makes you feel good. You know, that kind of thing. And and all of a sudden, he, Brian is getting the accolades that he deserved and yes. he formed his group and he went on the road and stuff. And that that was fun for me to to see him win. He finally won won his, his attention back from the audiences. I was so glad for him, you know. And good for you for sticking up for him. And I remember watching an interview with him and he said Carol Kay is the best bass player in the world. Oh, and really? He period. said that? He said oh, flat out. Sweet. Yeah, he's a, he's a sweet guy. But he, he's a real sharp guy. There's something about him and his music, whatever he wrote. And he, he wrote it because we'd have to sometimes rewrite it because it wasn't written 
too perfectly, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we yeah. had to recopy it, in other words, you know. Sure. So, yeah, but Brian was sharp as they come. He he did have some bad times, yeah. Sure. Who among us hasn't had a, a time or two where we're going right. out and dealing That's with stuff? Right. And then, yeah. Let's talk about good yeah. vibration because that is probably one of the most popular, I mean, just iconic great song. Lines, but yeah. It is a yeah. wonderful song. Now, what's really neat is you have this floating verse. It's just swirling, and your bass line in there kind of tethers it to earth a little bit, but still gives it that sense of, of just floating. But then when you kick in during the, the chorus, the pre-chorus and chorus, you went back to your jazz roots a little bit. And I think Brian wrote that part, but you really were able to harken back to those jazz days. I think we talked about that. Brian and I talked at, at times about stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and I said, how did you get the idea? He, he used to listen to the... The four freshmen, see, now these were jazz musicians that wrote their mm-hmm. own charts and stuff like that. It, it was close to being real jazz. It wasn't, it mm-hmm. was more like pop jazz or something, but he was influenced. Now, rock and roll is triad. Do, me, so. Brian heard it different. Do, me, so. Te, da, de, de. He heard those notes. Those are jazz notes, see. So right. I think it influenced him to, to listen to the four freshmen, and then he heard us jam a little jazz inside the studio sometimes, too. We'd work on one tune for three hours. You know, that really got boring sometimes. You know, we, we're used to recording three to five tunes every three hours. That, that's yeah. the union thing, see. So, uh, on Brian, we, we do, we work on one tune, and he'd change things, and he'd do, well, let's try this and try that and try this. But he, he wrote those parts out, and the bass line he wrote was jazz. You know, I, I do have to say that. It was jazz. So, yeah, it was a natural feel. Now, Hal Blaine is, is, was a good rock drummer. You know, he, he got the sounds on the, the engineer. Uh, I, I personally never really got along that great with him. He, he was kind of the, the macho type of guy, you know. Sometimes he would groove, yeah, sometimes he And so uh, me and the string bass player that was playing actually the same part, we, we played different parts on the first part of the tune. I'm up high. I love the colorful And then we, we both joined the boom, bing, 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 boom, 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 boom. We played it together. Now, Lyle Rift is a former jazz bass player. He played with the Paul Horn Jazz Group and like that. So we, we locked Hal Blaine in. You know, he, he couldn't do anything but what we said, <laughs> okay, here's the beat, play on it, yeah, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. And so it grew, you know. But you know what? We did 12 record dates for that. Wow. That's so funny, huh? Yeah, that's I, amazing. I, I, I do remember one time when I tried the fuzz tone, so that that was one day, that, and I heard that on on a tape. You know, I said, "Yeah, I remember that fuzz tone," but he never changed the bass line. He changed everything else, but he never changed that bass line. See, so well, it really was the groove. Yeah, I read a, a quote by Paul McCartney about Pet Sounds. He said. 
Pet Sounds was my inspiration for making Sgt. Pepper. Wow. He said, I was always really blown away with how clever it was and how intriguing uh-huh. the arrangements were. And he says, there's a very interesting bass. It's always nearly on offbeat. If you've got a song in C, the first bass note will normally be a C, but Carol would play a G. It's still fitting, uh-huh. but it gave you a whole new field. That's quite uh-huh. a compliment coming from Paul McCartney. All I was doing was reading what Brian wrote. I, I never made up any lines on the Beach Boys stuff. I, those were Brian's bass lines. He had to say that about him, not not me. I, I just I just played the lines he wrote, you know. So it, it's nice to Paul. I think Paul, Paul was surprised it was me, though, because he kept saying about Brian how, how great Brian played bass, you know. <laughs> so he, you know, just, he just kind of laughed at that, you know. But he finally found out, and he was very, very nice. He sent me a pic, you know, that he used at uh, some big concerts. You know, so I mean, so I, I sent him a pic, too, and I said, thank you for the nice words, you know. So he's a very nice. You know, Paul McCartney can sing some jazz pop, too, you know, because he, he took some, some old standard tunes and recorded them, and he did a heck of a great job singing them. He really is a, a standard kind of guy, you know. He, people ask me, well, how, how do you like his playing? Because he says so many nights. I said, uh, I finally listened to the Beatles. You know, I, I don't listen to hardly any of that stuff, but I did listen to it. I said, yeah, he did it right. He played good. He played good for that band. Yeah, he was fine, you know. He's not Ray Brown, but Ray Brown's jazz. See, that's a different thing entirely. But, uh, yeah, but he could play that bass, and he did it good. But his singing, I was amazed at his singing. Uh, that, that that really hit me good, yeah. He, he was something else. Speaking yeah. of the work that you did with the Beach Boys on Pet Sounds, a friend of mine, Rob Burks, pointed out that there was a movie made about recording that album. And I, if you saw it, I was wondering if, if you – I think it's called uh, Mercy and Grace or something like that – and it, it has you in it. I, I know about that. But no, I, I saw some ads about that gal got in touch with me, and she, she was a nice gal. She says, oh, I want to play it just like you. And I never said those words that she said about the fire hat and like that. I, just, I said, no, I, that didn't happen. There's a lot of scenes on there that I saw in the ads that did not happen, so I don't know you know, when they uh, film things like that, they film it as if the singers were there singing it. All we did was record the tracks. If they're seeing a film with the singers there, they're seeing a staged film. It's phony. Right. Don't buy into it, you know. They're trying to create our history, and that's wrong. Yeah, now, you got to the point where a lot of producers would have so much trust in you that they would come in. In fact, there was an interview. I don't remember which producer it was, but you said he would never come in with bass lines written. And you said, hey, where, where are the bass lines? And he would say, I, I want you to, to create them. To get to that point where a producer has that kind of trust in you, that's that's a pretty high mark. So you got really great at creating your spots, your parts in the studio. Well, it's actually from the get-go, from the very first date that I did. All I needed was a chart for the chords, and if they want to indicate a boop-de-boop, that's fine, but I'm not going to play boop-de-boop, you know. And they just tell me, just play what you want to play, you know, and that was for everything. It was such a big deal because that's what I did every day and night of the week, you know, so yeah, it, 
they would let me know if I'm playing too many notes, you know, because some producers you have to play very simple for. So I knew sure. who was who. And, and I'd play according to what I think that they want. But I still mm-hmm. made up the parts. That they didn't have to write them out, no. Some of the Motown, yeah, some of Motown they did. But later on when I worked the Women's Jazz Festival in 1979, I, I bumped into um, Melba Liston, the trombone player that, that Quincy Jones had talked to me about. And we had trouble with the piano player on that. So we stood, stood up all night. I never met her. And Quincy said, oh, you, oh, you got to meet Melba. She's fine. <laughs> she was fine. She was a great gal. We talked about it. And she said, well, you know, I, I did some of the arrangements from Mocha. I said, no, Kitty, really? Had you done this? Or that? And I'd sing some of the parts. By God, she wrote the music. I said, whoa. And, and it was a supposed to be Gene Page that wrote. You know, I can remember when I asked Gene Page a question about a part that he had written on there, and and he acted like he never saw the music before. I said, wow, that was her that wrote some of those arrangements for Motown. See, yeah. and, and they don't want you to know that there were women involved on that, especially me playing bass. And I used to make up lines for Motown, too. But along the, the style that they had written in the first bar or two, that, that's all they had to write, just uh, right. this bar or two, and then I could play the whole tune in that style that they wanted. Now, you played on so many just iconic Motown tunes. I mean, then he kissed me. I think of the crystal. It's such a big one. Yeah, I also talked about the, the guy that invented the Motown bass lines, and James Jamerson. I talked about him when I did my seminar. People knew who he was, you know. Uh, and and when, when he finally came out to Los Angeles, um, to Hollywood, uh, the, the start of the 70s, I, I helped him get, I'm the only one that helped him get work at first, you know. But he had some problems there, you know. So and anyway, I, I did my best to help him. He, he seemed like a very nice guy, but he's the one that really did start the Motown type of baselines back in Detroit, yes. But they did about a third of them out here in Los Angeles, in, in Hollywood since 1963. And I had that in my book, and I had the proof of of all the calls, too, in in my log, you know, and my appointment books. I kept my appointment books, so I had those as as proof, too, you know. Mm -hmm. And then Motown got sued by the writers of some of those songs, too. And uh, and then that's when they finally made the official announcement, we are moving to Los Angeles, and about 67, 68, we all laughed. They had been out here since 63, you know. So (laughs) some of the tunes that we did out here were big hits, yeah. Yeah. How did you you get started with Motown? Because, you know, people think of that and they might not think of a of a you know a young white woman as the bass player for many of those songs but that was you on so many how did you get tied in with Motown we are going to pause part one of our comprehensive Carol Kay interview right there we're going to pick up part two with Carol's answer about her involvement with Motown and much much more lies ahead of us in part two I'm going to read a list of names like Glenn Campbell Quincy Jones Phil Spector and others to ask Carol what comes to mind when she thinks of them. I even have the guts to ask Carol what team of musicians and producers she would assemble to make an album herself. There's a whole lot of conversation yet to come. Part 2 is slated to be released on Monday, November 20th, so be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to get notice when Part 2 or future interviews are released. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. And remember, keep your bags packed and join us on our next journey to the stage. And that is a wrap.